That's horrible. So embarrassing. What can you do? You just have to run with it. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to 15 Minutes in Canberra. I'm Hayley Channer, Senior Policy Fellow with the Perth US Asia Centre. Today on the show, we are interviewing Dr. Benjamin Herskovich, a Research Fellow with the School of Regulation and Global Governance at Australian National University. As a Research Fellow, Ben focuses on China's economic statecraft and Australia-China relations, which are so important right now. Ben's also worked in government for the Department of Defence, where he was an analyst specialising in Chinese foreign policy. Before COVID, Ben also had a wonderful life travelling, including living in Beijing and working for think tanks there, including China Policy and the Centre for Independent Studies. Ben, welcome. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me, Hayley. That's my pleasure. So, Ben, a lot of people um, might never have visited China before, let alone lived there. My main question for you is, what was it like living in Beijing? It might be an experience um, people don't get to have for a very long time. I absolutely loved Beijing. It was an incredible place. The food is just sublime. The people are incredibly lovely and helpful and disarming and open. And the bars are great. The clubs are absolutely wild. <laughs> and Really? The, yeah, totally insane. Yeah. And the travel in China is just incredible. When I was there, my wife was working for the embassy in Beijing and she had herself a mission of visiting every province in China and almost got there bar one, I think. But so she would take me on a lot of trips across China and the country is just spectacularly beautiful from these lush, verdant forests in the south, beautiful beaches in the south to these wild windswept deserts in the west and you're up on the Tibetan plateau as well and beautiful old grottos and ancient temples. It's an insanely wonderful place. Wow. So for people who um, have not had the chance to visit there and speak to you know average Chinese mm. people, when you would tell um, someone on the street that you were Australians, what did Chinese people think of Australians? I'm not sure what they thought of Australians in general, but certainly on a personal level, everyone is really curious and keen to know more about you and keen to know why you're in China and what you're doing. I think as with many countries, when you travel to a place and meet people on a face-to-face -face level and you share a tea or a beer, it quickly becomes this really simple, earnest, honest human interaction. And so for me, when I think about the current state of the Australia-China relationship or these big geopolitical issues, I always get taken back to those human interactions where if you take a lot of the big politics out of it, it's a lot of human beings on different parts of the world, on different ideological sides. But nevertheless, if you're able to actually engage with them personally, there's often a huge amount of common ground and people share the same concerns and the same aspirations in terms of family and friends and education and the rest. Hmm. So looking at it from the other side too, mm. um, now that you're back living in Canberra, yeah. there's obviously China in the news a lot, but in a negative sense. Yeah. What don't average Australians um, know about China and Chinese people that Australians really should know? Yeah, this is a really good question and it's a really difficult one. I, I think the first thing that we all need to appreciate about China is that it is a country of 1.3 billion plus people 
And even though there is a communist party that is in control politically and which has a very particular view on history, on politics, on law and economics and every single other matter, the Chinese people at large have this insane diversity of views on an endless number of issues, as is the case with most people. And so if you are in charge of a Leninist party state, as the Chinese Communist Party is, you might seek to impose conformity and quash diversity in an intellectual sense, in a cultural sense, in the terms of values and ideology. But underneath your attempt to do that, there is a great deal of diversity and it bubbles up all the time. And when you have conversations with individuals, they'll express a whole host of views which are not consistent with the views of the Chinese Communist Party. And it's important for all of us in Australia, when we think about China as being the Chinese Communist Party or the PLA, this hard-edged organization bent on achieving goals which are adverse to our interests, that behind that sits a lot of people who, in many cases, wouldn't agree with that, would have very unorthodox views on history, views that are not at all consistent with the orthodox Chinese Communist Party view, and which in very subtle ways might be seeking to reform and change that. I will say, though, as a word of caution, that my impression is that the space for that diversity of views is narrowing considerably in China. Because it's really important for Australians to recognise that, you know, China isn't necessarily just its government. It is such a diverse country. And like you said, there's lots of views um, bubbling under the surface. So it's a shame to know that those views are narrowing and that people can't express themselves as easily as they once did. I'm wondering what you think, mm. though, about, you know, what's happened in Hong Kong recently. Mm. Um, I was really shocked by what happened there and I was heartened to see people from all different demographics coming out to demonstrate and, you know, exercise their right to express their views. Um, how do you feel about what happened in Hong Kong and um, what do you think that average Chinese people feel about what happened there? Yeah, the Hong Kong issue is really confronting and really depressing to my mind personally in that recently actually just by happenstance I revisited some of that footage of those mass protests in Hong Kong where you see what was a huge percentage of the population on the streets exercising their rights and freedoms and demanding more accountability and more democratic it's territorial and my first reaction was to be really inspired and to be really taken aback by how committed people were and to be really in awe of that and then my second reaction was to be, in a way, saddened by the fact that in Australia, we take so much of that for granted and we don't show that kind of commitment. But then also really depressed because it seems as if the prospects of that kind of system of government in Hong Kong are steadily fading away and the Chinese Communist Party is bent on asserting its will and ensuring that there is no freedom of that kind in Hong Kong and no accountability of that kind in Hong Kong and that the leadership in Hong Kong is willing to do the bidding of the Chinese mm -hmm. Communist Party. So it's a pretty sad story overall. And it's also one of those cases where regardless of the importance of the principles that the people of Hong Kong are trying to defend, there is very little that a country like Australia or a country like the United States can do in that we have a certain level of agency and influence vis-a-vis -vis China's policies. But when it comes to what is effectively a domestic issue like the issue of Hong Kong, but also an issue where the Chinese Communist Party cares deeply, 
the scope for Canberra or Washington to shift the dial is pretty negligible. I think it's still really important for the Australian government and for the US government and for other governments to make statements and to push and to seek to persuade the Chinese Communist Party to pull back. But I think we have to be realistic and acknowledge that the chances of that being successful are negligible. And uh, I'm interested to know about um, what we can do in Australia to improve the Australia-China relationship. Um, so I'm asking you just to help fix the most difficult <laughs> the small, tiny little issue. It's not as if anyone worries about this or not no one's working on this, right? Because <laughs> we recently saw China cancel the economic discussions that it has with Australia. And I think that followed Australian government um, tearing up the Belt and Road agreements that position of what the government had signed with China. So where to from here and how do we start to dial down the tension between Australia and China? Is there any way to do that? Yeah, this is an incredibly important and difficult question and probably a multi-billion dollar question given the implications for trade on the relationship Mm -hmm. falling apart. So it's high stakes and it's very challenging and there are no simple solutions, which is obviously a horrible cliche, but (laughs) it's true in this case. I think, frankly, the trajectory is fast going downhill and I don't see any likelihood of that trajectory changing. And to my mind, it's a function of two fundamental baselines on the part of Beijing and on the part of Canberra with respect to a whole host of really contentious, high-profile, high-stakes policy and political issues. Canberra and Beijing are in diametrically opposed camps and see things very differently. So, for example, on human rights in China, what looks like genocide and crimes against humanity against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang on the destruction of Hong Kong's rights and freedoms. Canberra takes a very critical line and Beijing sees that as a serious affront to its core interests, its territorial integrity, its control over its homeland. On the South China Sea or the East China Sea, Canberra will send Royal Australian Navy vessels through the South China Sea. China claims that as its maritime territory. Again, this fundamental disagreement. And then Zooming back to Canberra on issues of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to generate influence and soft power in Australia via a whole host of different vectors, whether it be Confucius Institutes or shaping international media narratives, Canberra sees that as an affront and an effort to undermine core Australian interests, efforts to undermine Australian sovereignty, essentially. Mm. And as a result of that, Australia will be very critical of China. And China will be very critical of Australia. And those core problems, of which there are many others, things like China's investment in infrastructure in the ICT sector is another classic case where Australia and China have very different views. Those core disagreements are not going anywhere. And if anything, as great power competition between Washington and Beijing intensifies, these fraught disputes between Australia and China will become even more fraught. So I don't see the relationship improving and the broader structural issues mean that the downward trajectory will probably only intensify. Having said all of that, (laughs) that's all the really bad story. And I think in a way non-negotiable because from China's perspective, it's not going to give up on any of those core priorities. But similarly for Australia, and I think the Australian people would broadly agree with this, we have an obligation by virtue of our values and our commitments to speak out on these issues and to criticize China's human rights record on Xinjiang, criticize its approach to Hong Kong, 
criticize its actions in the South China Sea, support Taiwan, and the list goes on. All of that means that we're going to be at loggerheads for the foreseeable future. But there is the possibility of maybe slowing the downward trajectory or creating a few off ramps. And what I mean by that is that there have been a number of instances in the last year where the Australian government has taken action, which I think yields relatively limited benefits for Australians and for Australia, but nevertheless offends Beijing and leads China to take an even more adversarial approach to Australia. And so I think there is the possibility of finessing the way in which Australia deals with some issues so that on the really important things, say Xinjiang, Hong Kong and Taiwan and the South China Sea, we do take a stand and we take the heat from Beijing. But on issues where there is little to be gained for Australia, we're willing to speak a little more softly or not say anything at all. And to my mind, the Belt and Road Initiative agreements with Victoria is a classic case of that in that if one goes and reads the text of those agreements, it's rhetorical fluff. There's no substance to it. The threat to the national interest from an Australian perspective of those agreements was negligible. Nevertheless, the Australian foreign minister vetoed those agreements, which was a huge political affront to Beijing. So to my mind, that's a case of massively putting the relationship under strain for very little return for the Australian people. You make some really great points there because it is so true. You need to be very careful in what you choose to um, confront China on. And that whole value proposition of what are you getting out of this is a very important one. And it's such a difficult question to Mm. answer because, like you said, China and Australia are diametrically opposed on a number of issues and it's sort of been a rolling um, pattern of lots of issues coming up all the mm. time. So there's never a de-escalation. It's always just upping the yeah. ante. Um, so you've offered some very practical advice about what specifically Australia could do. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> because I don't think you get that answer a lot from, from many people who, who know China. Lastly, I have a question for all my guests, which is their dinner party story, something weird or wonderful or surprising that's happened to them in the course of their career. Do you have a story like that that you would like to share? (laughs) I've actually never told this story at a dinner party, but maybe I should. But (laughs) one story that maybe captures the messiness of a career trajectory and the embarrassment of being a junior person in a big organization was when I was a grad at DFAT, we had this great opportunity to have a meeting with the foreign minister and the trade minister. And so it was myself and all the other very enthusiastic DFAT grads, all prim and proper, proper on our best behavior, trying to ingratiate ourselves with the DFAT managers and with our bosses, 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 boss. And we're sitting around this huge table and on every table we have a glass and a jug of water. And everyone- Sounds like a trap already. I know, exactly. (laughs) But I didn't see it. I was so foolish. So I sit down and I'm a bit nervous as you would be. Well, as I was, I don't want to assume that other people are like that, but I'm a bit nervous, mouth a bit dry. And I thought, okay, I need to have a drink of water before the foreign minister comes in. And everyone else was doing the same thing, but somehow they'd managed to figure out how to use the jugs. And there was a button that you had to press to open up the top of the jug. Why would they do that? Um, Anyway, I pour the water and it just all bursts out the side. (laughs) 
and none of it goes in my glass, but it goes all over the desk in front of me. And then the manager of the graduate program at the time was mortified, as you would be if you were her and you're managing all of these new grads and you're about to meet the foreign minister. And so she rushes over and she's quickly mopping up all the water before the foreign minister comes in. He was running late, but his arrival was impending. Yeah, it was imminent. And so everyone was terrified. And then we finally mop up all the water and then Kevin Rudd walks in. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a great discussion, uh, so wide ranging and your experience in China and also here in Canberra has been really valuable. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. I can honestly say it's the most enjoyable podcast interview I've ever done. <laughs> Is it the only podcast <laughs> you've ever done? That's kind. Don't tell them that. <laughs> thank you.